Hello, this is John Tompkins, and this is the first episode of my podcast, which is going to be called Indiana Criminal Court Summaries. Uh, the goal here is for me to go through on a weekly basis, seven-day periods, uh, sort of recaps and discussions about opinions that have been published by the Indiana Court of Appeals, an occasional memorandum decision, not for publication, uh, opinions that have been published by the Indiana Supreme Court, and topics or opinions that are coming from the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. You'll hear me refer to them as SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States. Um, I hope to be able to help other lawyers develop their motions practice, develop their uh, familiarity with changes in case laws that comes out. I hope to have lay people listen to this and understand how case law impacts uh, maybe their loved ones or somebody that they're trying to help or if they work in the legal field, um, sort of what's going on in the court system as it may apply to their work. And there might even be a um, law student or two out there who would have interest in this because it just sort of sheds some light on the way to ana analyze fact patterns and legal issues uh, in reported cases, and it might help you answer some questions in criminal procedure um, or if you're in a clinic, work on a, a case that you're assigned to in a clinic. Anyway, this week and this week uh, for this episode is February 13th through February 20th, 2021. There were three published opinions from the Indiana Court of Appeals. There were no published opinions from the Indiana Supreme Court, and there are a couple of little things coming from the uh, Supreme Court of the United States from SCOTUS. The three cases that I'll discuss are DeWeese out of Clay County. It uh, is a criminal rule 26 cash bond versus pretrial release case. Demby versus state out of Allen County, which is a substantive double jeopardy analysis case. And Mance versus state out of Lake County, which examines the denial of a sentence modification under Indiana's sentence modification statute, which is 3538117. Uh, Deweese, what's going on with Deweese? Well, it was issued on February 15th of 21. The cause number, since I don't have a citation yet, is 20A-CR-01146. And the panel was Tavitas... Bailey and Rob with Tavitas writing the opinion. Again, it came out of Clay County. Um, this was an appeal of the denial of pretrial release under Criminal Rule 26 factors. And uh, the facts are Ms. DeWeese was 18 years old. She drove three people, three men, to a house that they were planning on robbing. So it was a burglary. Uh, during the burglary, the owner of the house or occupant of the house shot at the three men who entered. They fled, got back in her car, she drove away. So she was the driver for this burglary attempt. Uh, after she was captured, which was the same night, um, at her initial hearing, the court set a $50,000 cash-only bond, meaning you couldn't do a surety, you couldn't pay 10% to a bondsman, had to be $50,000 cash. Uh, also, part of the sort of standards um, intake in jails in Indiana these days is for probation to screen people for pretrial release. Uh, DeWeese was screened and found appropriate for electronic monitoring both in Clay County and in the county where she would have lived with her mother, uh, which was Putnam County, right next to Clay County. There was a hearing that was held. 
some of the facts that were established were that Deweese had no criminal history, so she never failed to appear for court. She was attending high school at the time of her arrest regularly, doing well. She'd been accepted to two colleges and planned to go on to one of them and study nursing. Um, she had a home available in Putnam County where she could be on electronic monitoring. She was willing to abide by any conditions the court imposed. Um, and for whatever reason, there didn't seem to be any consideration of her ability to pay the bond, although there was some testimony that her family would be trying to save the money up. The victim also testified for the state. He said that he was um, still worried, scared, concerned that the people who had come by his house would return if they were released, and now he kept two guns handy and with him at all times, whereas before the attempt to burglarize his house, he only kept one gun on him all the time. Uh, court denied a change in the bond and uh, discussed Jaeger, which is a 2020 case on criminal rule, 26, but distinguished it a couple of ways that ultimately the Court of Appeals did not agree with because here the Court of Appeals, Appeals reversed and remanded under an abuse of discretion standard, which is a very high standard. You don't see many abuse of discretion reversals, but here is one. So why? Well, in the discussion, the Court of Appeals first went straight to Indiana Constitution, Article 1, Section 16, which bars excessive bail and under the Sam case, uh, 893 Northeast 2nd, 761, um, discussed the, the way to determine what excessive bail is. And it's just two questions. One, what's the purpose of the bail? It's always to protect the public and any individuals and to ensure the appearance of the defendant at court. Second, the um, in the figuring out what's excessive is, What's the financial ability of the accused to pay? Um, obviously, $1,000 in bond to a millionaire is not as much of a deterrent to flee as $1,000 um, cash bond to a thousandaire. So that's just something that's supposed to be factored in. Um, seldom seen just as a practical matter when you're bond hearings. It's very seldom factored in. Most counties have matrices, and, and there's not a consideration of the matrix for income. Regardless, um, the biggest thing that the court determined in this case um, was based on the Lopez case. That's 985 Northeast 2nd, 358. And that is that the issue of physical safety of another person or the community, uh, of any risk to that physical safety, which is a important bond consideration must be supported and established by clear and convincing evidence. That's the Lopez rule. Clear and convincing is what the state needs to prove there is a risk of physical safety to another person or the community. And very clearly, uh, the Court of Appeals said victim testimony that there is residual fear by itself will not be enough to meet the clear and convincing burden, and that's why they reversed. There was also some discussion, just so you know, of other things to look at when you're getting ready for a bond hearing. The court did discuss uh, the code sections 353385 and 353384, which are factors for release uh, and considerations on bond reviews, and also the IRAS system, Indiana's risk assessment score. DeWeese was a four, 
according to the trial court, the Court of Appeals said she should have been a two because they gave her two points for being unemployed. And they said for a student that's um, who lost their part-time jobs due to COVID, uh, they shouldn't get those two points. Regardless, that is Deweese, and it's a good case for the defense, and it's a good thing to be familiar with when you are trying to consider uh, getting ready for a bond review. Next case, Demby versus State, D-E-M-B-Y. That's out of Allen County. It was issued on February 16th, clause number 20A-CR-1012. Tavadis, Bailey, and Rob, with Tavadis writing again, was the panel. Uh, this is a substantive double jeopardy case. Um, Demby was convicted of eight counts that were um, coming out of a domestic violence uh, in- encounter episode that he had with his ex-girlfriend and her adult daughter. He was among the convictions were attempt murder, aggravated battery with the firearm enhancement, meaning they, they filed a separate enhancement of use of a firearm during the aggravated battery. Um, and then a, a slew of other um, sort of companion domestic crimes. The trial court realized there could be a double jeopardy issue, and what they did to address that um, was reduce the burglary from a level one felony to a level three felony, meaning they took the deadly weapon element out, um, and they vacated the domestic battery conviction, um, probably on the assumption that the domestic battery and the aggravated battery uh, were double jeopardy. The Court of Appeals reversed in part, concluding that it was only the aggravated battery conviction that violated the double jeopardy um, clause. Total sentence that was given uh, and has to be recalculated was 84 years. So the issue basically came down to, as stated by the Court of Appeals, did the convictions for attempt murder, aggravated battery, and burglary violate substantive double jeopardy discussion i'm going to keep it um, focused just on the type of substantive double jeopardy issue that demby faced because there are two types and there are two cases one for each of the types the first type that we will not talk about because it's not demby but just know it's out there is is um, where there's a single actor transaction of crime that violates a single statute but there's harm to multiple victims. So you have to decide if it's double jeopardy to sentence on each victim separately. That's the Powell case, P-O-W-E-L-L. That's not the one we're dealing with. We're dealing with Waddle, W-A-D-L-E, W-A-D-L-E. And that is the type of substantive double jeopardy that occurs when you have a single act or transaction of crime that violates multiple statutes that have common elements and harms one or more victims. So you can have a double jeopardy issue here with a single victim, whereas under the Powell type, you need need multiple victims. Waddle applies here, um, and the analysis that you go through is first, look at the statutes. If any of the statutes at issue permit multiple punishments, then you're done. There's no further analysis. um, No double jeopardy exists. Not the case here. So you go on to step two. If the statutes are not clear, um, then you apply the included offense statutes. The definition of an included offense appears at 35-31.5-2-168. Um, 
And you should also look at 3538.1.6 and 30, well, those two statutes when you're talking about when you get to this second step. Um, so not the statutes of the crimes, but the statutes of some definitions. Um, and you assess whether under those statutes and those definitions, the charged offenses are the same. Uh, if neither offense included the other offense inherently or as charged in the charging information, then there's no double, no double jeopardy. Let me break that out for you. So you look at the two charged offenses and you say, are, is one of these offenses an inherently included lesser offense or is one of these offenses a factually included lesser offense? Inherently means that they have all the same elements except one. So if you prove one with four elements, you've automatically proved the lesser that only has three of those elements. That would be inherently included. Um, as charged or factually lesser included means the way the charging information reads, it makes, the same, makes those two offenses the same criminal act. And that would give you... Um, a double jeopardy. But if they're not, if neither offense is included in the other, then there is no double jeopardy. Um, so this, Denby survived. He got to step three of this test because it appeared that as they were charged, in his case, so factually, there was a lesser included. Now what you have to do is go through and examine the facts of the charging information and the trial evidence and you see if the defendant's actions are close in the following ways. Close in time, close in place, singleness of purpose, and continuity of action. So close in all those areas that they form a single transaction. When you have a single transaction, a prosecutor can charge multiple offenses. There's no doubt about that. But he has to charge them as alternative sanctions not as potential consecutive sanctions, multiple sanctions, for basically what is a single transaction. Here, none of the statutes um, clearly permitted multiple punishments, as I said, when you applied uh, 3538.16, which bars uh, judgment for included offenses, a statutory bar of judgment for included offenses, so not just the constitutional uh, protection against double jeopardy, but here's statutory protection. And 3531.5.2-168, which defines what an included offense is, if you apply that to the burglary, it was not included in the attempt murder or the aggravated battery. So they cleared. There's no double jeopardy on the burglary conviction with the attempt murder or the aggravated battery. However, when you apply the attempt murder and aggravated um, you, when you apply the attempt murder and the aggravated battery they're not inherently included with each other but here the charges the way the charges read and the way the evidence came in they were the same crime when you looked at the definition of what the same crime is under 35 31.5 so there was a double jeopardy violation only as to 
um, the aggravated battery and the attempt murder. And the reason this came up was the way it was charged, um, there was a specific charge that the attempt murder was with either a hammer or a firearm, and then the aggravated battery um, had an enhancement for use of a firearm attached to it. And when you look, when the court looked through the trial testimony and looked at the verdict forms where the jury had specifically in support of the attempt murder charge, checked off on a special verdict form that the circumstances that that they were relying on for the attempt murder were both the use of a hammer and a firearm. That made the attempt murder the same crime, the use of the firearm, as the aggravated battery with the firearm enhancement attached to it. So they reversed and remanded on that and ordered a resentencing. Gets kind of in the weeds there. Um, but it is a really good case to read through on how that analysis goes for that type of substantive due process or double jeopardy violation. Sorry. Last case I'm going to talk about today is Mance versus State. It came out of Lake County. It was issued on February 17th of 2021 with a cause number 20A-CR-01702. The panel was May, who wrote the opinion, Kirsch and Bradford. This was um, an appeal from denial of a petition for a sentence modification. The denial was affirmed. This was a pro se petition. Um, and it was sort of a convoluted process. The, the real critical thing to consider here is um, Indiana's um, modification statute, which is Indiana Code 3538.117, which limits the way and procedure for seeking sentence modification. One of the limits is you can only file one with any 301 modification without prosecutor consent. One modification without prosecutor consent every 365 days, and you can only file a total of two requests for sentence modification during any consecutive period of incarceration. So during the serving of a single sentence, you can only file two petitions for sentence modification um, without prosecutor consent. Uh, you can file more, but you have to get the prosecutor to agree to let you file them. Now, keep in mind, this is a little aside, there are certain crimes listed in 3538.117 for which you always need the prosecutor's consent, certain violent crimes uh, that you always need the prosecutor to consent before you can file a sentence modification. So always check that statute when somebody comes in and wants to pursue a modification to make sure you actually will be able to do that or if you have to get permission to do it first. And then ask and check the CCS to see if they filed previous requests and when those were so you don't run into those uh, limitations problems that are in the statute. Regardless, the what happened here was the pro se litigant got a little creative. He wrote a letter to the prosecutor in this case and said, um, hey, I need your permission. Here's a letter. If you don't respond to me within 30 days, I'm going to assume you don't have an objection and you consent to me filing a modification. He then filed the modification after there was no response. And the 
trial court summarily rejected that consent theory um, and denied the modification. The Court of Appeals compared and distinguished this case to the Harper case, which is uh, 8 Northeast 3rd, 695. In that case, the prosecutor was present at an actual hearing on a petition, and the court gave a response deadline to the prosecutor saying, you know, hey, tell me where you stand on this. I do want to do something. Um, let me know in a week or so. Uh, that, that, those were the facts in Harper. And the state did not respond. Okay? So the trial court in Harper went ahead and modified the sentence. Um, and the Court of Appeals in that case said you don't need an affirmative approval for modification. A tacit approval can be relied on. Um, but that's going to depend on the facts. Here, the failure to respond to a letter was found to be significantly different than the failure to respond after a hearing where the state had a chance um, to state their position and it was made clear by the court that you know they were going to do something if they didn't hear back, and they didn't hear back. Uh, so it was denied in this case, and the denial was affirmed uh, because a letter to the prosecutor saying, if you don't write me back, um, that means you agree, was uh, rejected as a theory of consent. Um, and that was a published opinion, so they must have seen something important in wanting to clarify Harper, I think, was more of the focus of, of the Mance decision. And it does clarify Harper. Um, didn't have anything from the Supreme Court during this week, although it, it looks like on the SCOTUS... Um, docket, there's going to be an interesting Sixth Amendment challenge uh, coming up in the next session or over the next several months. Uh, it's a white-collar case where there was a $15 million restitution order uh, entered by the judge at sentencing, even though the, the U.S. attorney had not pursued the $15 million, which was a bonus that had been paid to the defendant by the company. Um, and that wasn't part of the criminal enterprise. It wasn't part of the base charges. Uh, and they did not submit the $15 million bonus on any of the uh, jury verdict forms or as, as part of the need to convict or a specific fact or on a special verdict form. Uh, so SCOTUS is going to look at the Sixth Amendment right to trial as it relates to this $15 million restitution order when there was no verdict that related to that $15 million. I'll keep you posted on that. If you do any white-collar work, you might already know about it. Um, so those are the three cases, DeWeese, Demby, Mance, nothing from the Indiana Supreme Court, a little bit from SCOTUS. Thank you very much for listening to my first episode. I'll be coming back weekly. And if you have any questions or comments, uh, please feel free to respond to this. I hope you will forward it to anybody that you know that might be interested in criminal law and how it works. Um, and I hope you'll comment. I hope you'll ask questions so we can, we can have some meaningful discussions and maybe some interviews in future episodes. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure, and I will see you next week. John Tompkins, it's my second week of doing, <clears throat> excuse me, a review of Indiana criminal appellate cases and providing you with some 
verbal summaries in a podcast format. The week I'm covering right now is the 14th of February 2021 through the 28th of February 2021. And in this period, we only have three cases. They're all Indiana Court of Appeals, no Indiana Supreme Court or United States Supreme Court cases. The three cases we'll talk about today are Ball versus State out of Elkhart County, uh, which is an appeal from the denial of an expungement petition. Harris versus State out of Madison County, which is an appeal of a conviction for felt F1 level neglect resulting in death. And Conley versus State out of Ohio County. The original case in Conley was in 2013. There was a direct appeal shortly thereafter. This is an appeal of a denial of Conley's PCR petition. So those are the three areas. There are a few uh, SCOTUS notes, SCOTUS as you recall, Supreme Court of the United States, that I'll get to at the end because they point to things that might be coming out next spring or later this spring um, from the United States Supreme Court. So to get started, Ball versus State, first case I was, I'm going to get into, as I said, it's Elkhart County. This opinion was issued on the 23rd of February. The appellate cause number is 20D03-1912-XP-9 and I give that again because there are not sites on these cases yet they just came out the panel was pile writing the opinion with Vedic and Brown concurring uh, the the appeal from the denial of the expungement uh, is conducted on an abuse of discretion standard I'm going to talk about these appellate standards and how they play into um, criminal justice reform and things I think you might all like to see uh, in that vein later. So I'll just comment now. So right, right now, the, the appeal of a denial of an expungement petition, and obviously this is in the context of the discretionary expungement petitions, not the mandatory expungement petitions, if, if you're in that kind of business. Um, it's an abuse of discretion standard. In this case, uh, the trial court was reversed and it was sent back to the trial court with instructions to grant the petition for expungement. And here are the facts. Ball, um, in 1996, before he was 18, pled as an adult to two burglaries that were Class C felonies, meaning business instead of residence. Back in those days, Class Cs were businesses um, or anything other than a residence. Class Bs, more serious if you burglarized a residence. Uh, he served four years in the Department of Corrections, got out. Following his release, he committed four alcohol-related misdemeanor offenses only. In November of 15, he petitioned to expunge all of that, the felonies and the misdemeanors. Again, if you're practicing in this area or if you're just curious, you'll probably want to take a look at Indiana Code 35, 38, 9, 1, 2, and 4. 35-38-9-1, and four. Um, There's a hearing held February of 16. Trial court granted on the misdemeanors, denied on the felonies, and the grounds they stated were the four misdemeanors um, were committed after the felonies, so they wouldn't grant on the felonies, um, and also that the um, petitioner, Mr. Ball, did not prove that he had paid restitution fines 
and costs to the court. Ball filed a motion to reconsider that 2015 petition with a letter from probation stating that everything had been paid, and that was denied as well by the trial court because it said that he didn't, didn't prove he paid the fees, even though probation said everything had been paid in that cause. Uh, Ball then waited the amount of time that's required in the expungement statute, and in 2019, he filed a new expungement just on the felonies, which had not been expunged, with a uh, set of documents from the clerk's office that was attached showing that there was a zero balance on fines, fees, and restitution. That was denied as res judicata. If you don't recall your Latin, uh, look it up. No, uh, kind of law of the case type thing. We've ruled on this before in this same case, and we're not going to rule on it again. Uh, so the trial court denied it without a hearing. Uh, state also had objected uh, in that 19 petition. In June of 20, there was a motion to reconsider uh, that specifically told the trial court under 35-38-9-9, res judicata is not available in these uh, proceedings when you're reconsidering uh, a petition for expungement. You have to reconsider. You can't rely on previous rulings. So the trial court gave Ball another hearing, and Ball was the only person who testified. The state did not cross him. The state did not present any evidence, uh, but instead just argued that a C-felony burglary um, was too serious a crime for an expungement to be granted. A little odd. I guess they just don't like the legislature listing it in the expungement statute as available, but that's what they argued. The trial court, again, denied Ball's petition, stating that he did not pay his restitution. In fact, his co-defendant paid the restitution. Now, his co-defendant was his brother in, back in the original 2013 uh, burglaries. I'm sorry, the, or the original 1996 burglaries. Co-defendant was his brother, so apparently his brother paid the restitution, um, which is why there was zero balance. The trial court, in denying this second petition, also said basically there was a typo in the petition, and Ball had said he wanted to expunge his offense instead of offenses and conviction instead of convictions. Um, now, I'll let you draw your own conclusions on that. And finally, the trial court, in denying this second petition, in filed in 19, heard in 20, said that there were guns stolen in the burglary, and since there were guns stolen, that was more dangerous than your average burglary. So base, part of the basis to deny. So discuss. let's discuss this last. This is the one that's up on appeal, this last 2020 um, request to expunge is the one that's on appeal, and it's really, this is a good case for the process and procedure to follow in filing expungements. The court lays it out step by step, Good reason to read this opinion if you're doing a lot of expungement work. Um, here, also interestingly, even though there's an abuse of discretion standard on the overall case, where they had to, um, where the appellate court had to interpret the statute, they applied a de novo review um, instead of abuse of discretion. So within the case, they applied a friendlier standard to the petitioner than the overall burden. And in doing that, they said that the trial court interpreting the statute in a way that would result in um, disqualification of any co-defendant 
if another co-defendant paid the restitution was absurd, the legislature could not possibly have meant to disqualify a large number of co-defendants when victims got full restitution from other co-defendants. So he said, that's not a basis for denial. Next, um, they said it was abuse of discretion to deny the petition because Ball, in this case, had used singular instead of plural in referring to what he wanted to um, expunge. And since these were two separate counts in a single cause number, everybody knew what he was talking about when he came back in, filing this petition, and so denying it based on the tense used in referring to what was being expunged was an abuse of discretion. Finally, um, the basis of guns being stolen during the burglary was also abuse of discretion because the trial court is not allowed to disregard remedial measures passed by a legislature and must construe those measures liberally. A case you might want to look at for that is Klein versus State, 6 Northeast 3rd at 363. Klein versus State, 6 Northeast 3rd at 363 saying courts must liberally construe these expungement statutes. And here the evidence, 20 years after the, 20 plus years after the original offense, um, and one-sided because again, the state produced no evidence and only objected and argued. Um, and the overwhelming evidence of the business and lifestyle of Mr. Ball was so favorable that the fact that guns were stolen in a burglary over 20 years ago did not justify a denial. It was reversed and remanded to grant the expungement in Ball. So next case, Harris. Harris versus State is out of Madison County. It was issued on the 23rd. Uh, cause number 20A-CR-00847. The panel is Pyle, writing the opinion, Vedic and Brown concurring. It's an appeal from an F1 neglect resulting in death conviction after a jury trial. The issues were, uh, one, did the court commit error admitting certain photographs? Two, was there insufficient evidence to support the conviction? Three, was it an abuse of discretion to sentence uh, Harris to 40 years in the Department of Corrections? And four, was this an inappropriate sentence under Appellate Rule 7B? The Court of Appeals affirmed the trial court on all four issues. Uh, facts of this case, and I'll recap them, but they are, if you read this opinion, just a, a very bad defense set of facts, very just egregious um, set of facts. H.H. is the child involved, and H.H. Uh, died at 18 months. During his life, he lived off and on with both his mother and a female relative of his mother. Uh, he, there were repeated visits to the emergency room with H.H. by both his mother and the relative. Um, the injuries were explained to the mother. These visits also included, and again, this is out of Madison County, but at, one, at some point, H.H. was transported down to Riley. The injuries were so bad on these initial trips. And during that visit to Riley, one of the physicians at Riley told the mother and the aunt without um, mincing words that they suspected there was abuse going on and wanted to make it clear to both of the relatives, the mother and the other relative, uh, 
that Riley believed there was abuse. Um, eventually, during a stay with the mother and the boyfriend, uh, the boyfriend showed up at a local ER in Madison County with HH nearly uh, dead and needing CPR to restart his heart, get a heartbeat, resuscitation when they tried to clear the air path to begin resuscitation. There was a paper towel stuffed down HH's throat that had to be dislodged. They did eventually revive him. Uh, the boyfriend's explanation of the injuries was that he had been in an accident, in a car accident, and hit a tree on the way to the hospital, um, and that did not add up to the injuries. So the police were called in. The detectives took statements from Harris, three different statements, uh, and several days after the admission to the ER in Madison County, having already been transferred down to Riley HH, um, was declared brain dead. And an autopsy followed that listed uh, uh, about 52 injuries, um, too numerous to go through here. So the four issues, one, as far as admitting photographs, the sets of photographs that were offered go as follows. There were 14 photos from the ER up in Madison County that were admitted without objection. There were nine more photos that were part of the medical records from the ER treatment in Madison County. Uh, they were objected to, but that objection was overruled, and all nine were admitted. There, there was an unspecified number of photographs admitted from Riley Hospital during the medical testimony um, about, what, about treatment at Riley. There was no objection made to that set of photographs. And finally, there were 26 autopsy photos, 25 external, one of the liver that were admitted over defense objection. Um, the trial court, in reviewing these, basically um, said that the photos were not an abuse of discretion. Admitting the photos were not an abuse of discretion. They did a Indiana Rule of Evidence 403 analysis, noting that there can be gory or revolting um, factors that make repetitive photos inadmissible because they're unfairly prejudicial. Uh, on some occasions, autopsy photos may show a body in an altered state that is not fair uh, to the defendant. So care has to be taken when there are photos like this and this number of photos. Um, but in, in this case, each of the photos um, directly related to testimony that was being elicited, elicited about treatment and nature of injuries um, and were relevant to rebut charges of not being aware um, that the child was being placed in a dangerous situation. Uh, additionally, the ER photos from up in Anderson or Madison County were part of the medical record. They were part of a protocol of taking pictures that were placed in the medical records um, that second set, not the first, from Madison County. Uh, and again, very strong weight was given to the fact that the photos were specifically related to testimony as to each photo and what it showed and proved. Um, at the sentencing in this case, the, the court found as aggravators that the injury was beyond that needed to prove the offense. Um, the element of the minor being under 14 here, uh, was, he was well under 14, 18 months, and the court noted that that made it a defenseless victim. 
the defendant. Ms. Harris was in a position of trust as the mother. The trial court found no mitigation at all and that this was the worst of the worst set of facts and circumstances to justify the 40 years call it DOC sentence. Um, so second issue that was up on appeal, sufficiency of the evidence. Um, again, the standard here is the appellate court only looks at the probative evidence and inferences that support the verdict and does not reweigh credibility or reweigh the evidence generally in conducting a sufficiency review. Here, the only element that the appellate that the appeal was challenging was whether uh, Harris knowingly placed HH in a dangerous situation, which is required for the F1 uh, neglect resulting in, in death. And that knowing element means that the defendant was subjectively aware of a high probability that the dependent is being placed in danger. Subjectively aware of a high probability that the dependent was being placed in danger. Uh, that's from Armonk, A-R-M-O-N-C, which is at 479 Northeast 2nd, 1294. That's the standard for that element of F1 neglect. Here the evidence uh, from the multiple ER visits that the mother went with the child to and the doctor um, telling Harris and the aunt down at Riley uh, that they suspected neglect, that based on that evidence, that testimony, um, Court of Appeals said there was sufficient evidence on that element, which was the only one challenged. Sentencing. Um, again, there were two different sentencing reviews conducted here. One was whether uh, the court abused its discretion in sentencing to 40 years at the Department of Corrections, and two was whether the sentence was uh, inappropriate under an appellate review standard found in uh, Rules of Appellate Procedure 7B. So abuse of discretion here as long the standard for that is as long as the statutory the sentence is within the statutory range and this is it's at the maximum of the statutory range the only review is abuse of discretion so another abuse of discretion review which means that the trial court you have to prove the trial court did something that uh, is totally contrary to the facts and circumstances known to the trial court at the time Harris argued that, that several of the aggravators were not supported by the record. For instance, her criminal history. Um, also, she argued that the age of the victim, nature of the abuse, consumption of alcohol and drugs were inappropriate aggravators for the court to find. The appellate court said that those are all fair considerations as particularized circumstances of the crime. Now, there's a little bit of a close call on some of this because you're not allowed, trial courts are not allowed to use an element of the offense as an aggravator. So here, age of the victim is an element of the offense. And the Court of Appeals was clear to point out that while the age itself cannot be viewed as an aggravator, the, the age can be viewed in the context of the nature and circumstances of the crime and in the overall circumstances, it can be one factor that a trial court considers, even where age is also an element. Um, I think they're also hinting, although they didn't say it outright, that where there's such a great age disparity between the minimum age and the age of the victim, 
um, that can be one of the considered factors. Um, regardless, the Court of Appeals found there was no abuse of discretion in considering all those and in imposing the four-year sentence. The, they also said, and this is interesting, that even if Harris had been right on those factors, her history, age of the victim, nature of the abuse, consumption of alcohol and drugs, night of the offense, and history of that, uh, there was another aggravator that Harris did not charge, which was that she was in a position of trust as a mother, and that single aggravator alone could have been used to support the 40-year maximum sentence that he received. So even if they had found error, they're telling us they would have found it was harmless error. Next, last issue was, uh, was this an appropriate sentence under Appellate Rule 7b? Uh, here, the appellate review of the facts and circumstances and nature of of the offense, character of the offender. That's the constitutional standard for review of sentence by the appellate court. Um, they look at the culpability of the defendant. They look at the severity of the crime, the damage that that crime caused to others. And here, the Court of Appeals was unpersuaded, given those factors, that this was uh, an inappropriate sentence and so they affirmed on the fourth issue as well. So that's that's Harris. Moving on is our final case this week, um, and that is Conley versus State out of Ohio County. This opinion was issued 23rd of February under cause number 19A-PC-03085. That's 19A-PC-03085. Tavadis wrote the opinion, May and Pyle concurred Brief summary, the original case was in 2013. There was a direct appeal where it was where the conviction was affirmed not, and the plea. It's back on appeal, the denial of the PCR. In a PCR, um, deni this was denied at the trial court. The appellate court affirmed in part and reversed in part with a remand with instructions to conduct a resentencing. Here are the facts. Conley, when he was 17 years old back in 2013, um, killed his 10-year-old brother while he was babysitting his 10-year-old brother. Then uh, spent part of that night with his girlfriend, watched a movie, went home, woke up the next day, went into the police station, admitted to it, confessed, um, but gave no explanation on why he did it. Described what was an out-of-body experience, said he Regretted doing it, but just couldn't stop himself. Uh, it was like he was outside his body. The state filed the uh, life without parole LWOP count, and the defense filed an insanity claim. Uh, there was also a competency review conducted. Uh, the parties tried to negotiate a plea. None was ever negotiated. So when Conley showed up for trial, uh, he, he entered a plea with no deal, so a mercy plea. No plea agreement was pled open, and his, his trial counsel wanted to try to avoid the LWOP to acceptance of responsibility, it sounds like. Um, and the trial court immediately, or two days later, set the matter for a sentencing, um, really giving minimal time, if any, to prepare for a juvenile LWOP sentencing hearing. Um, not really sure what courts are thinking sometimes, when they do that, but here it's taken 
the better part of a decade to correct it. So on this matter, there were six issues that were appealed. First, does the Indiana Constitution ban juvenile LWOP sentences? Is it unconstitutional under the Indiana Constitution to sentence a juvenile to life without parole? Second issue, was trial counseling effective? Third, was the plea in this case knowing, intelligent, and voluntary? Fourth, was appellate counsel ineffective? Fifth, does the new evidence, in this case a new opinion about the defendant from his mother, make the original sentence unfair? And sixth, does res judicata bar the unconstitutional and inappropriate sentencing claims that were raised in this PCR? So in other words, they weren't raised in the appeal. Can they be raised in this PCR? Again, I'll let you read the case for the detailed facts. They're fairly lengthy, and they get into a lot of mental health issues that Conley had suffered and was suspected of suffering, a lot of character that was inconsistent, some suicide attempts by him, some suspected and now proven neglect of him by stepfathers that was never treated and never investigated by CPS. It was partially discovered by an investigator prior to the sentencing hearing. It was two days after his guilty plea. That's relevant here because the investigator told the defense attorney that more time was needed to investigate these items and interview more people, but the defense attorney went forward with the hearing as scheduled by the trial court and didn't ask for continuance or additional time to conduct that investigation. Anyway, it's a lengthy record of things that had not been considered or presented in full context. I stress in full context. They were touched on but not presented in full context at the original sentencing hearing. The original sentencing aggravator, the LWOP aggravator, a single one that was a victim under the age of 12, the original sentence the trial court imposed was based on that aggravator. There was minimum weight given to Conley's mental health. That becomes important as the bigger picture of mental health was presented at the PCR. Minimum consideration given to being cooperative in pleading because there was overwhelming evidence of guilt. That's what the trial court said. I'm going to make a little comment on that later. And the trial court rejected any insanity or lack of appreciation mitigation, so not arising to the level of a defense, but still a mitigator. The trial court at the original sentencing rejected that assertion and also rejected that there was any remorse and the nature and circumstances of the crime was also argued at the original sentencing as a mitigator basically because of the overall remorse of Mr. Conley and him turning himself in shortly after the offense and making a full confession. Again, the single aggravator, age 12, or under the age of 12 for the victim, a 10-year-old victim, the trial court said far outweighed any mitigators that might exist, but basically after finding there were no mitigators, there were minimal mitigators. On the appeal, 
Miller versus Alabama, which is uh, 567 U.S. I'll have to get the page number for you. But it came out in 2012. Um, and it found, the U.S. Supreme Court in Miller versus Alabama found that a mandatory LWOP uh, is unconstitutional under the federal constitution. Even though that came out in 2012, the, the appeal after the 2013 conviction of Conley affirmed, uh, the, in, the Indiana Supreme Court affirmed uh, a discretionary LWOP in, Cam, in Conley's case. At the, at the post-conviction hearing, there was psychological testimony that's really too um, detailed to recap here. Dr. Parker, you may be familiar with him if you do this kind of work cited Roper, which is uh, 543 U.S. 551, and Graham, which is 560 U.S. 48, uh, about brain science and how the United States Supreme Court has clearly delineated that this is a, a factor that should be taken into consideration um, generally and also a factor that should be given greater weight when you're dealing with a juvenile, the brain science around brain development of juveniles in particular. Um, I'll just recap what Parker had to say by, by saying, if you're involved in a case like this at the trial phase, listen to your psych expert, um, whether it's a pre-sentencing or a trial or both. Absolutely listen to what your doctor is saying because there was a lot that Parker was trying to tell the trial counsel at the time of the trial that was not being heeded, that was not being listened to, he was not be, being given the time to do the type of interview and uh, examination that he was telling them was necessary uh, to present a clear picture to the trial court. There was another doctor, Dr. Ewing, who testified a, a specifically about brain studies in juveniles. Um, again, read the, the opinion if you want to get into more detail on that. The post-conviction petition was denied, then a motion to correct errors was filed, and that was also denied, and this appeal is uh, from the denial of the motion to correct errors. So PC standard, the, um, when you appeal a post-conviction petition denial, you have to show that the evidence as a whole points unerringly to a contrary conclusion, unerringly to a contrary conclusion, not predominant, not clear and convincing, maybe even higher than beyond reasonable doubt, unerringly, no error at all. Which is what I want to comment on in some of these um, appellate standards and things that we're getting from the Court of Appeals and the criminal justice concept. And I'll hold that till after I finish this, but keep that in mind. Um, so was the LWOP unconstitutional under the Indiana Constitution and the trial or the appellate court um, disposed of that issue by saying here, uh, that issue is raised in, a, in an amicus brief and you cannot raise new issues in an amicus brief because the record doesn't support them. Um, I mean, it's not just on, even if the record did support the issue, it, it couldn't be raised originally in an amicus brief. It would have to be in the appellate's brief. So they didn't rule on that at all. Ineffective trial counsel, they did find ineffective trial counsel. Um, Court of Appeals said all of the juvenile and brain science uh, evidence that had not been presented, uh, the evidence from the psychiatrists who had done a full evaluation before the PC but had never been allowed to do a full evaluation because of time constraints before the sentencing, 
the information that was available from the investigator now but was not available because of the condensed time schedule at the original sentencing and not requesting additional time to present that and gather that evidence was clearly below the standard for criminal defense norms meeting the first prong of Strickland. Second prong, as we all know, is a prejudice prong. And here, again, looking at the evidence and the overwhelming nature of the evidence about Conley's mental health issues at the time that he committed the crime and inconsistent good character at the time he committed the crime in all other areas of his life, the prejudice was not getting the full picture considered by the trial court in a sentencing. Now, again, that's cured by sending it all back down to the trial court and having the trial court consider it. You don't know. Maybe the trial court will impose the same sentence, but it's kind of a wait and see at this point. Was the guilty plea knowing, intelligent, and voluntary? That's the third issue. It was affirmed because, again, the standard here is to prove that the evidence as a whole points unerringly to a contrary conclusion, and the appellate court said you just couldn't say that it unerringly pointed to a contrary conclusion. So the finding that Conley might have been grossly and severely mentally and emotionally compromised and then turning right around and saying, but that still doesn't mean that they – that also doesn't prove knowing, intelligent, and voluntary were not possible or need to be reconsidered in light of all that new evidence. A little interesting, I think, conflict. Next was appellate counsel ineffective. The trial court was not clearly erroneous. So here we have the clearly erroneous standard again. The appellate had to prove that the court of appeals would have ruled differently. And basically you're going to the court of appeals and saying, hey, would you guys do something different if we showed you all this? And then they subjectively say either yes, they would, or no, they wouldn't. Here they said in proof we would have ruled differently. I mean, just think about that. Rock and a hard place for PC counsel. We have to prove to you that you would have done something different in your own opinion. Okay. Next, the newly discovered evidence claim. And if you do PC work, take a look at PC Rule 1A4. There's a nine-part test for newly discovered evidence, and the petitioner has to establish all nine parts in order to prevail on a newly discovered evidence claim. Here the newly discovered evidence was a new opinion of the mother, and the court of appeals said that it was not material to the sentencing decision. So that's one of the nine things. Failed on one of the nine and therefore failed on that issue. Finally, was there an inappropriate sentence under trial rule or appellate rule 7B? Appeals court, very reasonably, I mean this is the rule. The original appeal had gone to the Supreme Court on the 7B issue, and so the appellate court did not have the authority to review the 7B analysis since it had been conducted by the Supreme Court. So they simply did not rule on that issue. They remanded for resentencing, and that's what we have on that. So just a general comment here on all these 
review standards and, and things like you know, an aggravator or mitigator. There's, there's a mitigator of pleading guilty and accepting responsibility. In the Conley case, the trial court at the original sentencing uh, said that they were giving that minimum um, weight because there was such overwhelming evidence. Um, you know, obviously, I'm a defense attorney, so I've got a bias here. But trial courts and appellate courts both apply this to mitigation. And I want to point out the absurdity of this, Be, and especially in this case where in another part of the case, the Court of Appeals said they won't reweigh evidence. Okay, well, when you say there's overwhelming evidence of guilt, you're weighing evidence, okay? And let's take a look at the evidence you're weighing in a guilty plea, okay? This isn't a trial. This is a guilty plea. And in a guilty plea, the evidence is the state reading the probable cause affidavit. There is no defense evidence. You can't possibly know what the whole story is. And I will remind you that in the Indiana Rule of Evidence, it says the police reports aren't even admissible at trial because they are one-sided, persuasive documents intended to establish probable cause. So in a guilty plea, the one-sided, intended to establish probable cause evidence should always be overwhelming, folks. And even if it's overwhelming in the PC, and even if you would lose at trial, almost certainly in the subjective opinion of a trial court or in the subjective opinion of a court of appeals in weighing that themselves, you could still go to trial, folks. You could still make the state carry the burden, make the state spend the money, and you're not. And then they're turning around and saying, well, that's too bad. We're not giving you credit. Well, you can tell what I can tell. Um, and I'll talk more about the burdens on appeal and a PC. For now, I just want to point out, these burdens have been placed by our Indiana appellate courts, Supreme Court included, for over 20 years. Uh, they continue to build. There's another one that is particularly interesting to me. If you do a motion to suppress and you lose, and then you go to trial and you preserve the motion to suppress at trial, when it's reviewed by the appellate court after trial, it's an abuse of discretion because it's a, they're saying, those courts are saying, uh, it becomes an admissibility of evidence question if you do it at trial. Now, I'm going to spell this out. So if you lose a motion to suppress pre-trial, if you want to get a de novo review of a constitutional question, you have to seek an interlocutory appeal. And those are discretionary. So you might seek it and not get it, but in order to even have a chance at that level of review at the Court of Appeals, you have to seek interlocutory appeal. And then, because if you don't, and you go to trial and you preserve the error, you no longer get a de novo constitutional question review, you get an abuse of discretion review, which is much harder to do. Um, so why is, it really is all stacked against defendants. Uh, back in 2000, there was a stated policy from the Indiana Supreme Court, much different court then, but it's stuck, this policy stuck, and it had to do with consistency of verdicts, which I understand in the civil cases, because when you have money judgments, people have to pay the money, people are going to get the money, um, 
they need to be able to count on that judgment standing up and not flip-flopping back and forth. But, you know, consistency of judgments and appellate rules that are structured to maintain criminal convictions under the auspices of consistency of judgments will also perpetuate injustice when there is a meaningful error at the trial level. I'll talk about it more in different cases, but think about that concept and think about whether you think it's okay or not um, and think about public policy arguments that you could make if you're going to be doing appellate work uh, to fight against that type of thing. That's my commentary on this week's appellate court opinions. Uh, A few SCOTUS notes from the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, One of the cases down the road, coming up down the road, is U.S. v. Cano, C-A-N-O. None of these cases have sites. They're all pending in front of the Supreme Court with docket numbers. Um, Here, the question is, does the border crossing exception to the warrant requirement of the Fourth Amendment uh, in as it applies to electronic devices, this is a phone, include looking for evidence of other crimes or is it limited to digital contraband on the device itself? A little context, if you, the way this came up, they were searching, the Border Patrol was searching laptops for software or classified documents or things being um, secreted out of the United States or into the United States that were on laptops. Now they're looking at phones at the border and they're looking into the hard drives. So the contraband in a laptop would be stolen software or stolen documents. Um, And that was okayed as the border crossing exception. In this case, um, the government looked at the entire phone and text messages and phone histories way outside what was on the the contraband that was on the phone. And there wasn't really contraband on the phone. There weren't stolen documents on the phone. They were looking for, for criminal history to, to support investigation. So that's that's an interesting take on this exception. Uh, the Ninth Circuit uh, chose the more limited application for contraband only on the device. And we'll see what SCOTUS says probably within a few months. Next is... Uh, Chavis versus Delaware, which is a DNA case, and Taylor versus Illinois, which is an autopsy case. These are interesting because they're confrontation, Sixth Amendment confrontation questions, and they're asking, does the Sixth Amendment confrontation clause require the report's author, the person who actually made the report to testify at trial and be present for cross-examination and confrontation? And this is similar to... um, a Massachusetts case that came out about 10 years ago that says in alcohol and drug testing, alcohol and drug testing, the actual chemist who performed the test has to testify to meet the Sixth Amendment confrontation requirement. So now they're saying if a medical examiner does an autopsy, can someone else come in and testify as to that report, or does the person who did the autopsy and wrote the report have to testify? And in the uh, Delaware case, it's DNA evidence. Can a lab supervisor come in and testify about the meaning of the report, or do you have to present, does the state actually have to present the um, analyst who did the DNA testing? Um, So those will be interesting. If they go the same way as drug testing went 10 years ago, we'll have to have the actual 
people performing the tests and writing the reports show up. Next is Smith versus Titus. It is another Sixth Amendment um, claim, but it's a right to a public trial. In this case, there's a habeas. Uh, this is a habeas petition. Smith, at his original trial in a preliminary matter, um, the trial court judge excused the, you know, closed the court, got everybody out of the court except the lawyers, uh, discussed some preliminary rulings on admissibility of evidence and on things that had been excluded from evidence. And the reason the trial court did that was because there were things that had been excluded that were not uh, going to be testified to, but that the court had to uh, clearly lay out for the lawyers to understand what not to ask in front of the jury. And the court did not want press in the courtroom uh, to hear and report on the things that had been excluded because jurors, although they're told not to follow the news, could very easily be compromised by seeing those items reported in the news. So, right, you know, good decision, don't let the, the um, press hear this, uh, but probably a better practice. And I think this is going to be, I think the trial court's going to be affirmed on this because there's a, a sound basis for doing it. Uh, I don't know what the prejudice to the defendant would be in a case like this. Uh, but I think they're clearly going to say at the Supreme Court that the better practice would be to do a sidebar or to go in chambers to discuss these kinds of matters instead of clearing a public courtroom. Um, so that's what's coming up for the United States Supreme Court. That is the end of this week's uh, Indiana Criminal Appellate Summaries and Reviews. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. I ask you to pass this uh, podcast along to two other lawyers, law students, or lay people who might be interested in these kinds of issues. Thank you very much, and I'll talk to you next week.